0: CHAPTER 68. PART 4. OF THE DECLINE AND FALL OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE. VOLUME 6. THIS IS A LIBRIVOX RECORDING. ALL LIBRIVOX RECORDINGS ARE IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. FOR MORE INFORMATION, OR TO VOLUNTEER, PLEASE VISIT LIBRIVOX.ORG. THE HISTORY OF THE DECLINE AND FALL OF THE ROMAN EMPIRE. BY EDWARD GIBBON. VOLUME 6. CHAPTER 68. PART 4. THE TIDINGS OF MISFORTUNE FLY WITH A RAPID WING. Yet such was the extent of Constantinople that the more distant quarters might prolong, some moments, the happy ignorance of their ruin. But in the general consternation, in the feelings of selfish or social anxiety, in the tumult and thunder of the assault, a sleepless night and morning must have elapsed. Nor can I believe that many Grecian ladies were awakened by the janizaries from a sound and tranquil slumber. On the assurance of the public calamity, the houses and convents were instantly deserted and the trembling inhabitants flocked together in the streets, like a herd of timid animals, as if cumulated weakness could be productive of strength, or in the vain hope that amid the crowd each individual might be safe and invisible. From every part of the capital they flowed into the church of St. Sophia. In the space of an hour, the sanctuary, the choir, the nave, the upper and lower galleries, were filled with the multitudes of fathers and husbands, of women and children, of priests, monks, and religious virgins. The doors were barred on the inside, and they sought protection from the sacred dome, which they had so lately abhorred as a profane and polluted edifice. Their confidence was founded on the prophecy of an enthusiast or impostor, that one day the Turks would enter Constantinople, and pursue the Romans as far as the column of Constantine, on the square before St. Sophia, but that this would be the term of their calamities, that an angel would descend from heaven with a sword in his hand, and would deliver the empire with that celestial weapon to a poor man seated at the foot of the column. Take this sword, would he say, and avenge the people of the Lord. At these animating words, the Turks would instantly fly, and the victorious Romans would drive them from the west, and from all Anatolia as far as the frontiers of Persia. It was on this occasion that Ducas, with some fancy and much truth, upbraids the discord and obstinacy of the Greeks. Had that angel appeared, exclaims the historian, had he offered to exterminate your foes if you would consent to the union of the church, even then, in that fatal moment, you would have rejected your safety or have deceived your god. While they expected the descent of the tardy angel, the doors were broken with axes, and as soon as the Turks encountered no resistance, Their bloodless hands were employed in selecting and securing the multitude of their prisoners. Youth, beauty, and the appearance of wealth attracted their choice, and the right of property was decided among themselves by a prior seizure, by personal strength, and by the authority of command. In this space of an hour, the male captives were bound with cords, the females with their veils and girdles, the senators were linked with their slaves, the prelates with the porters of the church, and the young men of a plebeian class, with the noble maids, whose faces had been invisible to the sun and their nearest kindred, In this common captivity, the ranks of society were confounded, the ties of nature were cut asunder, and the inexorable soldier was careless of the father's groans, the tears of the mother, the lamentations of the children. The loudest in their wailings were the nuns, who were torn from the altar with naked bosoms, outstretched hands, and disheveled hair, and we should piously believe that few could be tempted to prefer the vigils of the harem to those of the monastery. Of these unfortunate Greeks, of these domestic animals, whole strings were rudely driven through the streets, and as the conquerors were eager to return for more prey, their trembling pace was quickened with menaces and blows. At the same hour, a similar rapine was exercised in all the churches and monasteries, in all the palaces and habitations of the capital nor could any place, however sacred or sequestered, protect the persons or the property of the Greeks. Above 60,000 of this devoted people were transported from the city to the camp and fleet, exchanged or sold according to the caprice or interest of their masters, and dispersed in remote servitude through the provinces of the Ottoman Empire. Among these we may notice some remarkable characters. The historian Franza, first chamberlain and principal secretary, was involved with his family in the common lot. After suffering four months the hardships of slavery, he recovered his freedom. In the ensuing winter, he ventured to Adrianople, and ransomed his wife from the Mirbashi, or Master of the Horse, but his two children, in the flower of youth and beauty, had been seized for the use of Mohammed himself. The daughter of Franza died in the Seraglio, perhaps a virgin, his son, in the fifteenth year of his age, preferred death to infamy and was stabbed by the hand of the royal lover. a deed thus unhuman a deed thus inhuman cannot surely be expiated by the taste and liberality with which he released a Grecian matron and her two daughters on receiving a Latin ode from Philalphius who had chosen a wife in that noble family. The pride or cruelty of Mohammed would have been most sensibly gratified by the capture of a Roman legate but the dexterity of Cardinal Isidore eluded the search, and he escaped from Galata in a plebeian habit. The chain and entrance of the outward harbor was still occupied by the Italian ships of merchandise and war. They had signalized their valor in the siege. They embraced the moment of retreat, while the Turkish mariners were dissipated in the pillage of the city. When they hoisted sail, the beach was covered with a suppliant and lamentable crowd, but the means of transportation were scanty the Venetians and Genoese selected their countrymen, and notwithstanding the fairest promises of the sultan, the inhabitants of Galata evacuated their houses and embarked with their most precious effects. In the fall and sack of great cities, an historian is condemned to repeat the tale of uniform calamity. The same effects must be produced by the same passions, and when these passions may be indulged without control, small, alas, is the difference between civilized and savage man. Amidst the vague exclamations of bigotry and hatred, the Turks are not accused of a wanton or immoderate effusion of Christian blood. But according to their maxims, the maxims of antiquity, the lives of the vanquished were forfeited, and the legitimate reward of the conqueror was derived from the service, the sale, or the ransom of his captives of both sexes. The wealth of Constantinople had been granted by the sultan to his victorious troops, and the rapine of an hour is more productive than the industry of years. But as no regular division was attempted of the spoil, the respective shares were not determined by merit, and the rewards of valor were stolen away by the followers of the camp, who had declined the toil and danger of the battle. The narrative of their depredations could not afford either amusement or instructions. The total amount in the last poverty of the empire, has been valued at four millions of ducats, and of this sum, a small part was the property of the Venetians, the Genoese, the Florentines, and the merchants of Ancona. Of these foreigners, the stock was improved in quick and perpetual circulation. But the riches of the Greeks were displayed in the idle ostentation of palaces and wardrobes, or deeply buried in treasuries and ingots and old coin lest it should be demanded at their hands for the defense of their country. The profanation and plunder of the monasteries and churches excited the most tragic complaints. The dome of St. Sophia itself, the earthly heaven, the second firmament, the vehicle of the cherubim, the throne of the glory of God, was despoiled of the oblations of ages, and the gold and silver, the pearls and jewels, the vases and sacerdotal ornaments were most wickedly converted to the service of mankind. After the divine images had been stripped of all that could be valuable to a profane eye, the canvas or the wood was torn or broken or burnt or trod underfoot or applied in the stables or the kitchen to the vilest uses. The example of sacrilege was imitated, however, from the Latin conquerors of Constantinople and the treatment which Christ, the Virgin, and the saints had sustained from the guilty Catholic might be inflicted by the zealous Mussulman on the monuments of idolatry. Perhaps, instead of enjoining the public clamor, a philosopher will observe that in the decline of the arts, the workmanship cannot be more valuable than the work, and that a fresh supply of visions and miracles would speedily be renewed by the craft of the priest and the credulity of the people. He will more seriously deplore the loss of the Byzantine libraries, which were destroyed or scattered in the general confusion. One hundred and twenty thousand manuscripts are said to have disappeared. Ten volumes might be purchased for a single ducat, and the same ignominious price, too high perhaps for a shelf of theology, included the whole works of Aristotle and Homer, the noblest productions of the science and literature of ancient Greece. We may reflect with pleasure that an inestimable portion of our classic treasures were safely deposited in Italy. And that the mechanics of a German town had invented an art which derides the havoc of time and barbarism from the first hour of the memorable twenty ninth of May disorder and rapine prevailed in Constantinople till the eighth hour of the same day when the sultan himself passed in triumph through the gate of st Romanus he was attended by his viziers bashaws and guards each of whom says a Byzantine historian was robust as Hercules dexterous as Apollo, and equal in battle to any ten of the race of ordinary mortals. The conqueror gazed with satisfaction and wonder on the strange, though splendid, appearance of the domes and palaces, so dissimilar from the style of Oriental architecture. In the Hippodrome, or Antimedon, his eye was attracted by the twisted column of three serpents, and as a trial of strength he shattered with his iron mace, or battle-axe, the underjaw of one of these monsters which, in the eyes of the Turks, were the idols or talismans of the city. At the principal dome of St. Sophia, he alighted from his horse, and entered the dome. And such was his jealous regard for that monument of his glory, that, on observing a zealous Mussulman in the act of breaking the marble pavement, he admonished him with his scimitar that, if the spoil and captives were granted to the soldiers, the public and private buildings had been reserved for the prince. By his command the metropolis of the Eastern Church, was transformed into a mosque, the rich and portable instruments of superstition had been removed, the crosses were thrown down, and the walls, which were covered with images and mosaics, were washed and purified, and restored to a state of naked simplicity. On the same day, or on the ensuing Friday, the muezzin or crier, ascended to the most lofty turret, and proclaimed the ezan, or public invitation, In the name of God and his prophet, the imam preached, and Mohammed the Second performed the namaz of prayer and thanksgiving on the great altar where the Christian mysteries had so lately been celebrated before the last of the Caesars. From Saint Sophia he proceeded to the august but desolate mansion of a hundred successors of the great Constantine, but which in a few hours had been stripped of the pomp of royalty. A melancholy reflection on the vicissitudes of human greatness forced itself on his mind, and he repeated an elegant distich of Persian poetry. The spider has wove his web in the imperial palace, and the owl hath sung her watch-song on the towers of Ephraziab. Yet his mind was not satisfied, nor did the victory seem complete, till he was informed of the fate of Constantine, whether he had escaped or been made prisoner, or had fallen in the battle. Two janizaries claimed the honor and reward of his death. The body, under a heap of slain, was discovered by the golden eagles embroidered on his shoes. The Greeks acknowledged with tears the head of their late emperor, and, after exposing the bloody trophy, Mohammed bestowed on his rival the honors of a decent funeral. After his decease, Lucas Notaras, great duke and first minister of the empire, was the most important prisoner, when he offered his person and his treasures at the feet of the throne. And why, said the indignant sultan, did you not employ these treasures in the defense of your prince and country? They were yours, answered the slave. God had reserved them for your hands. If he reserved them for me, replied the despot, how have you presumed to withhold them so long by a fruitless and fatal resistance? The great duke alleged the obstinacy of the strangers, and some secret encouragement from the Turkish vizier, and from this perilous interview, he was at length dismissed with the assurance of pardon and protection. Mohammed condescended to visit his wife, a venerable princess, oppressed with sickness and grief, and his consolation for her misfortunes was in the most tender strain of humanity and filial reverence. A similar clemency was extended to the principal officers of state of whom several were ransomed at his expense, and during some days he declared himself the friend and father of the vanquished people. But the scene was soon changed, and before his departure, the Hippodrome streamed with the blood of his noblest captives. His perfidious cruelty is execrated by the Christians. They adorn with the colors of heroic martyrdom the execution of the great duke and his two sons, and his death is ascribed to the generous refusal of delivering his children to the tyrant's lust. Yet a Byzantine historian has dropped an unguarded word of conspiracy, deliverance, and Italian succor. Such treason may be glorious, but the rebel who bravely ventures has justly forfeited his life. Nor should we blame a conqueror for destroying the enemies whom he could no longer trust. On the 18th of June, the victorious sultan returned to Adrianople and smiled at the base and hollow embassies of the Christian princes, who viewed their approaching ruin and the fall of the Eastern Empire. Constantinople had been left naked and desolate, without a prince or a people, but she could not be despoiled of the incomparable situation which marks her for the metropolis of a great empire, and the genius of the place will ever triumph over the accidents of time and fortune. Borsra and Adrianople, the ancient seats of the Ottomans, sunk into provincial towns, and Mohammed II established his own residence, and that of his successors, on the same commanding spot, which had been chosen by Constantine. The fortifications of Galata, which might afford a shelter to the Latins, were prudently destroyed, but the damage of the Turkish cannon was soon repaired, and before the month of August great quantities of lime had been burnt, for the restoration of the walls of the capital." as the entire property of the soil and the buildings, whether public or private, or profane or sacred, was now transferred to the conqueror, he first separated a space of eight furlongs from the point of the triangle for the establishment of his seraglio, or palace. It is here, in the bosom of luxury, that the Grand Signor, as he has been emphatically named by the Italians, appears to reign over Europe and Asia. But his persons on the shore of the Bosphorus, may not always be secure from the insults of a hostile navy. In the new character of a mosque, the Cathedral of St. Sophia was endowed with an ample revenue, crowned with lofty minarets, and surrounded with groves and fountains for the devotion and refreshment of the Moslems. The same model was imitated by the Jani, or royal mosques, and the first of these was built by Mohammed himself on the ruins of the Church of the Holy Apostles and the tombs of the Greek emperors. On the third day after the conquest, the grave of Abu Ayyub, or Job, who had fallen in the first siege of the Arabs, was revealed in a vision, and it is before the sepulchre of the martyr that the new sultans are girded with the sword of empire. Constantinople no longer appertains to the Roman historian, nor shall I enumerate the civil and religious edifices which were profaned or erected by its Turkish masters. The population was speedily renewed, and before the end of September, 5,000 families of Anatolia and Romania had obeyed the royal mandate, which enjoined them, under pain of death, to occupy their new habitations in the capital. The throne of Mohammed was guarded by the numbers and fidelity of his Moslem subjects, but his rational policy aspired to collect the remnant of the Greeks, and they returned in crowds as soon as they were assured of their lives, their liberties, and a free exercise of their religion. In the election and investiture of a patriarch, the ceremonial of the Byzantine court was revived and imitated. With a mixture of satisfaction and horror, they beheld the sultan on his throne, who delivered into the hands of Gennadius, the crozier, or pastoral staff, the symbol of his ecclesiastical office, who conducted the patriarch to the gate of the seraglio, presented him with a horse richly caparisoned and directed the viziers and bishaws to lead him to the palace which had been allotted for his residence. The churches of Constantinople were shared between the two religions. Their limits were marked. And, till it was infringed by Selim, the grandson of Mohammed, the Greeks enjoyed above sixty years the benefit of this equal partition. Encouraged by the ministers of the Divan, who wished to elude the fanaticism of the Sultan, the Christian advocates presumed to allege that this division had been an act not of generosity, but of justice, not a concession, but a compact, and that, if one half of the city had been taken by storm, the other loyalty had surrendered on the faith of a sacred capitulation. The original grant had indeed been consumed by fire, but the loss was supplied by the testimony of three aged janizaries, who remembered the transaction, and their venal oaths are of more weight in the opinion of Cantemir than the positive and unanimous consent of the history of the times. The remaining fragments of the Greek kingdom in Europe and Asia I shall abandon to the Turkish arms, but the final extinction of the last two dynasties which have reigned in Constantinople should terminate the decline and fall of the Roman Empire in the east. The despots of the Moria, Demetrius and Thomas, the last two brothers of the name of Palaeologus, were astonished by the death of the emperor Constantine, and the ruin of the monarchy. Hopeless of defense, they prepared, with the noble Greeks who adhered to their fortune, to seek a refuge in Italy, beyond the reach of the Ottoman thunder. Their first apprehensions were dispelled by the victorious sultan, who contented himself with a tribute of twelve thousand ducats, and while his ambition explored the continent and islands in search of prey, he indulged the Moria, in a respite of seven years but this respite was a period of grief, discord, and misery. The Hexamillion, or rampart of the Isthmus, so often raised and so often subverted, could not long be defended by three hundred Italian archers. The keys of Corinth were seized by the Turks. They returned from their summer excursions with a train of captives and spoil, and the complaints of the injured Greeks were heard with indifference and disdain. The Albanians, a vagrant tribe of shepherds and robbers, Filled the peninsula with rapine and murder. The two despots implored the dangerous and humiliating aid of a neighboring bashaw, and when he had quelled the revolt, his lessons inculcated the rule of their future conduct. Neither the ties of blood, nor the oaths which they repeatedly pledged in the communion and before the altar, nor the stronger pressure of necessity could reconcile or suspend their domestic quarrels. They ravaged each other's patrimony with fire and sword. The alms and succors of the west were consumed in civil hostility, and their power was only exerted in savage and arbitrary executions. The success and revenge of the weaker rival invoked the supreme lord, and, in the season of maturity and revenge, Mohammed declared himself the friend of Demetrius, and marched into the Moria with an irresistible force. When he had taken possession of Sparta, "'You are too weak,' said the sultan, to control this turbulent province, I will take your daughter to my bed, and you will pass the remainder of your life in security and honor. Demetrius sighed, and obeyed, surrendered his daughter and his castles, followed to Adrianople his sovereign and son, and received for his own maintenance, and those of his followers, a city in Thrace, and the adjacent isles of Imbros, Lemnos, and Samothrace. He was joined the next year by a companion of misfortune, the last of the Comnemnian race, who, after the taking of Constantinople by the Latins, had founded a new empire on the coast of the Black Sea. In the progress of his Anatolian conquests, Mohammed invested with a fleet and army the capital of David, who presumed to style himself emperor of Trebizond, and the negotiation was comprised in a short and peremptory question. Will you secure your life and treasures by resigning your kingdom? or had you rather forfeit your kingdom, your treasures, and your life? The feeble Comnenus was subdued by his own fears, and the example of a Muslim neighbor, the prince of Sinope, who, on a similar summons, had yielded a fortified city with 400 cannon and 10 or 12,000 soldiers. The capitulation of Trezabond was faithfully performed, and the emperor with his family was transported to a castle in Romania but, on a slight suspicion of corresponding with the Persian king, David and the whole Comnenian race were sacrificed to the jealousy or avarice of the conqueror. Nor could the name of father long protect the unfortunate Demetrius from exile and confiscation. His abject submission moved the pity and contempt of the sultan. His followers were transplanted to Constantinople, and his poverty was alleviated by a pension of 50,000 aspers till, a monastic habit, and, a tardy death, released Paleologus from an earthly master. It is not easy to pronounce whether the servitude of Demetrius, or the exile of his brother Thomas, be the most inglorious. On the conquest of the Moria, the despot escaped to Corfu, and from thence to Italy, with some naked adherents. His name, his sufferings, and the head of the apostle St. Andrew, entitled him to the hospitality of the Vatican, and his misery was prolonged by a pension of 6,000 ducats from the Pope and Cardinals. His two sons, Andrew and Manuel, were educated in Italy, but the eldest, contemptible to his enemies and burdensome to his friends, was degraded by the baseness of his life and marriage. A title was his sole inheritance, and that inheritance he successively sold to the kings of France and Aragon. During his transient prosperity, Charles the Eighth was ambitious of joining the Empire of the East with the Kingdom of Naples. In a public festival, he assumed the appellation and purple of Augustus. The Greeks rejoiced, and the Ottoman already trembled at the approach of the French chivalry. Manuel Palaeologus, the second son, was tempted to revisit his native country. His return might be grateful, and could not be dangerous to the port. He was maintained at Constantinople in safety and ease and an honorable train of Christians and Muslims attended him to the grave. If there be some animals of so generous a nature that they refuse to propagate in a domestic state, the last of the imperial race must be ascribed to an inferior kind. He accepted from the sultan's liberality two beautiful females, and his surviving son was lost in the habit and religion of a Turkish slave. The importance of Constantinople was felt and magnified in its loss. The Pontificate of Nicholas V, the Pontificate of Nicholas V, however peaceful and prosperous, was dishonoured by the fall of the Eastern Empire, and the grief and terror of the Latins revived or seemed to revive the old enthusiasm of the Crusades in one of the most distant countries of the West. Philip, Duke of Burgundy, entertained at Lille in Flanders an assembly of his nobles and the pompous pageants of the feast were skilfully adapted to their fancy and feelings. In the midst of the banquet, a giant Saracen entered the hall, leading a fictitious elephant with a castle on his back. A matron in a mourning robe, the symbol of religion, was seen to issue from the castle. She deplored her oppression and accused the slowness of her champions. The principal herald of the golden fleece advanced, bearing on his fist a live pheasant, which, according to the rites of chivalry, he presented to the duke. At this extraordinary summons, Philip, a wise and aged prince, engaged his person and powers in the holy war against the Turks. His example was imitated by the barons and knights of the assembly. They swore to God, the virgin, the ladies, and the pheasant, and their particular vows were not less extravagant than the general sanction of their oath but the performance was made to depend on some future and foreign contingency, and during twelve years, till the last hour of his life, the Duke of Burgundy might be scrupulously, and perhaps sincerely, on the eve of his departure. Had every breast glowed with the same ardor, had the union of the Christians corresponded with their bravery, had every country from Sweden to Naples supplied a just proportion of cavalry and infantry, of men and money, It is indeed probable that Constantinople would have been delivered, and that the Turks might have been chased beyond the Hellespont or the Euphrates. But the secretary of the emperor, who composed every epistle and attended every meeting, Aeneas Silvius, a statesman and orator, describes from his own experience the repugnant state and spirit of Christendom. It is a body, says he, without a head, a republic without laws or magistrates, The Pope and the Emperor may shine as lofty titles, as splendid images, but they are unable to command, and none are willing to obey. Every state has a separate prince, and every prince has a separate interest. What eloquence could unite so many discordant and hostile powers under the same standard? Could they be assembled in arms? Who would dare to assume the office of general? What order could be maintained? What military discipline? Who would undertake to feed such an enormous multitude? Who would understand their various languages, or direct their stranger and incompatible manners? What mortal could reconcile the English with the French, Genoa with Aragon, the Germans with the natives of Hungary and Bohemia? If a small number enlisted in the Holy War, they must be overthrown by the infidels, if many by their own weight and confusion. Yet, The same Aeneas, when he was raised to the papal throne under the name of Pius II, devoted his life to the prosecution of the Turkish war. In the council of Mantua, he excited some sparks of a false or feeble enthusiasm. But when the pontiff appeared at Ancona to embark in person with the troops, engagements vanished in excuses. A precise day was adjourned to an indefinite term, and his effective army consisted of some German pilgrims, whom, he was obliged to disband with indulgences and alms. Regardless of futurity, his successors, and the powers of Italy, were involved in the schemes of present and domestic ambition, and the distance or proximity of each object determined in their eyes its apparent magnitude. A more enlarged view of their interest would have taught them to maintain a defensive and naval war against the common enemy, and the support of Skanderbeg and his brave Albanians, might have prevented the subsequent invasion of the kingdom of Naples. The siege and sack of Verranto by the Turks diffused a general consternation, and Pope Sixtus was preparing to fly beyond the Alps, when the storm was instantly dispelled by the death of the II in the fifty-first year of his age. His lofty genius aspired to the conquest of Italy. He was possessed of a strong city and a capacious harbor, and the same reign might have been decorated with the trophies of the new and the ancient Rome. End of chapter 68, part 4